Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up? And welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. Um, I want to, if you guys that, that keep up and listen to all these episodes, I want to remind you that uh, I have a book, Fictional Authenticity, that depending on when this episode comes out, because I don't record these and put them up, like I'm actually ahead of my responsibilities with this podcast, so there never is a time where there isn't a podcast. Um, my book will probably be out, so please, I would love it if you check that out. You can get it on Amazon, Fictional Authenticity. But also, if you're not sure, if you're like, who is this guy? Can he even write? Is this a picture book? Is this for kids? What is this? Uh, the introduction and chapter one is also available on this podcast for free. You don't have to buy an audio book. You don't have to do anything. You can just go to the Dream Mason podcast, episode 92, and listen to those that that first piece of the book and actually get a sense of if it might be for you, if there's something in it for you. I do hope you check it out, and, and please send me your feedback, your suggestions, even if you hate it. Um, I can improve. I want to write a lot more books and uh, do a lot more podcasts, so even the bad feedback uh, or the tough feedback can be helpful. Today on the Dream Mason podcast, I have a couple, a married couple who also does a little business together. They have children. They have a, a, an interesting story that I just learned some new details about. Um, I really want to share with you, these guys are succeeding in their business, but their story I just find interesting because it could have gone one direction and then it took a different direction and they're finding success in that new direction, which I think is really inspiring because I think all of us have, you know, a vision for our life or dreams and it doesn't always go the way that we plan or that we want. And if we just throw up our hands and be like, well, that sucks. Life's over. You know, we become all pouty about it. Then we don't have, we don't see that there's more opportunities that are open right on the other side of the thing that didn't go the way that we want. So my guests today are Olivia and Ricky Barrett. I hope you guys don't. Uh, I hope you guys aren't upset when I put Olivia first, or should I put Ricky first? But <laughs> Olivia and Ricky Barrett. Um, I, I am upset about that. Right? <laughs> you guys can hear Ricky right now. So let me tell you a little about these guys before we jump in, and you get to really meet them. So Ricky was a professional baseball player. He got a full ride scholarship to the University of San Diego. Uh, his rookie season, he was pitcher he was the pitcher of the year he played 12 years professionally major leagues in japan um and he his career ended due to injury and he is now in real estate investing and he's a mortgage loan consultant and his wife olivia is has i guess you're an agent with keller williams but you're a top you're a top 40 agent in Sacramento. You have 10 best client satisfaction for three years running, master's club for six years in a row. I don't know what that means, but you're going to tell us. And you've orchestrated over 100 flips. You guys also <laughs> have two children, and you've been married for, what, 13 years, I think? Almost 13. Yeah, Almost 13 years. 13. Um, yeah. And as I like to share, as I said to Olivia when I met her, uh, Ricky was Ricky the star and then now Olivia has emerged and is the star of your guys life and I want to really dive into like how that looked when the focus of, of Ricky was the focus as a baseball player and and now it's kind of transitioned to Olivia as the superstar of real estate how are you guys welcome to the podcast we're great thank you for having us yeah what's up how, how are you we're good good we're trying we're Finally, better weather. It's not like crazy hot anymore. So we're enjoying that. Where are you guys? Where in the world can uh, can we find you guys right now? Sacramento, California. Nice. How long have you guys been there? God, well, Ricky's we thinking. Our house 2008. 
March of 2008. 2009. Nine. March 2009. <laughs> so we're married, so we correct each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're in business together. And let's let's start with just like how you guys you guys shared the story with me. Like, how did you guys how did you guys meet and how did how how did the evolution of your guys' life begin? So we actually lived in completely different parts of Sacramento. Um, we both were slated for some high schools that weren't the best. Um, Ricky obviously was looking to get picked up for um, a scholarship. So uh, we both uh, did what's called, uh, we tested in to get into this high school and we were both accepted. And so we met at some God awful morning class um, and started dating as much as you can date um, at 14 years old. Um, and then about halfway through the year, my dad became a diplomat. So we had to, I, I moved to Japan and so we had to break up. So um, I, I left, um, I had no idea Ricky played baseball at all actually. Um, and we ran into each other again about eight years later and started dating again. No, not 10, we got, we got married 10 years later. So he's correcting me this time. <laughs> Well, you got to share the story, right, of like what actually <laughs> happened. We can't skip over the good part. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so now, now you're you're really going to hear a different story. So I was at um, a restaurant downtown celebrating with my friend for her birthday. And um, we were at the bar and we were going to leave to go to a different place. So I went to the restroom. Ricky was on a date and saw me going to the restroom, left his date at the table and was waiting for me when I got out of the restroom. So, um, and then he went and met up with us at a different place. I would like to make a correction. Yes. Um, I, I was there with a group of friends. Uh, they did all happen to be girls. Uh, and actually who I saw at the bar in order to get sort of have an excuse to go up there was uh, another uh, pro baseball player from Sacramento, J.P. Howell. And so we kind of knew each other from playing against each other in high school and stuff. So I saw J.P. standing up there. And so I'm like, oh, there's my excuse, you know, like, hey, I'm going to go talk to my friend real quick, uh, when really it was about going to meet Olivia. So <laughs> did you that's know, the full story. Did you know it was her like eight years later? You just recognized her? Or did, were you just like, oh, she that's a pretty girl. I want to go talk to her. I totally, she looked exactly the same. I, you know, I know that's kind of a cliche to say about people you love, but that's, she looked exactly the same. And so I immediately recognized her. Um, Liv has always had like super long hair. And so that kind of, I was like, man, that looks like Olivia. And then she turned to the side and I'm like, oh, that's Olivia. And so, like I said, I had to make an excuse to break away from the table to, uh, cause I just had to go talk to her. So I'm always fascinated by people that like meet you know, at a really young age and then like reconnect or people that, you know, meet at like 14 or 15 and then stay together. Cause it's like some, I, I, I can't even imagine that. Like in my life, that, that would be the craziest thing ever. But what did you guys, when you guys were together at 14, even though you were young, did you guys feel like there was something like special or unique or was it just kind of like that typical like high school thing that ended and you didn't think of it much until you re-saw each other? He's looking at me to see what he should say. See, but, I, right? You're the, you're the superstar no. now. You're the captain of the team. He doesn't want to. He's, he's, he's thinking he's going to get in trouble. But no, I don't think that we thought it was like special like marriage or anything. But I did. So when we were on the plane ride um, out, of, out of the country, I was listening to my Mariah Carey tape over and over again and crying. And my dad was like, you will never think of that guy again. Don't worry about it. Wow. <laughs> And then fast forward 10 years later when we were getting married, I said, remember that guy that you told me that I would never think about again? <laughs> this is Sam. So it, it worked out. I don't think that we would have stayed together the whole time had we had I not moved. I don't think that we would have been, you know, high school sweethearts. I think it was important for us to go and have our own experiences and then, you know, rekindle at a later date. Ricky? Totally agree. And she's absolutely right. And she, like, she thought about me every day when she was gone. We all know that. I'm like, is this the truth? I'm like, but what about you? Did you, were you, were you like, this is the one, like in, at 14, were you like, this is the one? Uh, I plead the fifth. You can say no. I'm from <laughs> You guys are all safe. Like, I'm super honest in my no, relationship. I, I do think we had a pretty strong connection because it was so quick. Yeah. 
I, I think we even had one point where our honors English teacher, at, like Olivia said, we had got off of early classes like at seven in the morning, uh, called us both up to the front desk <laughs> and said, hey, uh, when you guys are in class, can you stop looking at each other the whole time? <laughs> so I, I think there was always sort of a connection there. Um, obviously, like Liv said, at 14, I you know, who knows? But um, yeah. but yeah, I it, just how the whole story played out. Um, it's just, I think, like we had said when you and I talked, that had we had tried to stay together through those years, I doubt it would have ever worked out. Um, but like Olivia said, having sort of going our own ways and having our own experiences. And then, you know, it was just, I don't know if Liv and I are big believers in fate, but it was just kind of one of those things that I think was sort of meant to happen. So what's well, cool. It's almost like, sounds like a movie, right? Like you, you can see the move, the, the movie with like the two high school kids meet, they're like all into each other. And then parents whisk the one of them away and they're all sad and tears and they're listening <laughs> yeah. to Mariah Carey. This is like straight out of like a Will Smith movie. And, um, and then, right. You like see her at a bar and now you're grown ups, and it's like, and you ditch a date like you can't write this. I mean, you can't. I wasn't on a date. We need it. We need it for the record. <laughs> um, it's a bet. You know what? It's it's a good story if you were on a date. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna. I, Olivia sounds let, more. Let me tell you this. the rest of the story because it's even better. She was a girl who tormented me in high school because she liked Ricky and was upset that I was dating him. And then, <laughs> so he was with her at the time. So it was good that he left that table. <laughs> And then she sent flowers when we got engaged, remember? And she said, I got the last laugh. <laughs> You're so mad at me for telling that whole story. This is so great. Well, thanks. I, so I mean, look, I didn't know when I, when I met you guys that this is what we were going to, how we would start this episode. But it's, it's great because it's just unexpected. I've never, I've never really had a conversation like this on this podcast. Um, I feel like we're on E. And you know, right? like, yeah. everybody wants to be on E. Um, that was a great, that was a great show. Real life or man, what was that? The celebrity one. Where oh, they were, the they... real life stories one. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, sorry. No, no, you're good. So, okay. No, let's, okay. So cool. That's how you guys met. And then you rekindled in your early twenties and it was just like off to the races. But at the time, Ricky was a professional baseball player, right? That's correct. So actually, when we saw each other again, he only had a couple more weeks before he left for spring training. So we, I didn't really know. I think we both didn't really know if we were going to have a long relationship or if it was just a quick rekindling, you know, and it was great to see you kind of thing. But um, then I started to go and and see him about once a month. I would fly out to wherever he was um, and visit him and then fly back. And so um, but he offered to buy my plane ticket the first time I went out there and I said, I'll come visit you, but I will be paying for my own plane ticket. Thank you. <laughs> and I think, um, that's kind of what I get, what he told me made me stand out as opposed to other people, because I just, I was never one to be dependent on anyone. So it was kind of, um, different for him and different for me because I eventually left my career to go and live with him. So I did end up, you know, having to let my guard down and, and um, be dependent on him for a while, which put me out of my comfort zone, but I loved it. It was, we had a great time. We traveled everywhere, honestly. Um, and so I would travel with a team only when we went to away games that were close by, um, but those were a lot of fun. And then obviously when we went to move to Venezuela and also to move to Japan, that was that was great fun too. Ricky, what was it? <laughs> I'm like picturing a minor league or professional baseball player and having a girlfriend travel with you. What's that? What was that experience like? I I you know what? I we loved it and I think fairly early on we we knew this this was going to get serious and so you know, by then I was already a few years into my career. Um you know, so it wasn't a big deal. And, and, and honestly, I had moved up to AAA pretty quickly. And so you play with a lot of older players and a lot of the guys on our team were married and had kids, you know, so there were very few of us there that weren't married or had kids. Um, so it, so it was a good mix. I, it wasn't like, Oh, now I got a girlfriend. I can't go out and do stuff. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was more, 
Um, being in the organization I was in, it was very family oriented amongst nice. the players. And so the wives were all good friends. The players were good friends, you know? So if one of us got traded or released, you know, it was always a big deal because the wife and the kids would leave, you know? So it was, um, it was a little bit different dynamic with the organization I was with in that sense. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was with a bunch of single guys that partied all the time, but How I was the guy with the girlfriend that had to stay home. You know, it yeah. wasn't like that at all. How close were you to, um, like how, like how, tell me a little bit about your career, your professional playing career. Like how close, oh. like you said, you got up to the minors really quickly. You were, you know, rookie of the year as a pitcher. Yeah, so I got drafted, uh, 2002, my junior year at San Diego. And I started, you know, kind of where everyone starts. You start in, they call it, you know, there, most people don't know this. There are tons of levels of the minor leagues, by the way. So it's very, uh, most people are like, oh, you started in single A. And I was like, well, kind of, uh, it's called short season A. <laughs> um, and that's for guys maybe that got drafted straight out of college. You get older, like kids that were drafted out of high school. So maybe now they're 19, 20. Um, so they sort of start out as, that's kind of your first year where you start out um, for most guys. And so, but within a couple of years, I was already in AAA. And so it, you know, so I sort of fast-tracked to AAA, but then once the injury started to happen, um, I was just sort of deadlocked there, you know? So I ended up staying four years in the same city and it, you know, the injuries is what really, really uh, kept me back. So I would, you know, pitch really well, I would get hurt and then rehab for a couple months or however long and then I would come back and pitch really well again um, but then the season would be over you know and so you know I was always back to sort of square one um, and honestly for like the last five six years that was kind of my MO <laughs> um, which really hampered any shot at making it to the major leagues or anything like that you know I was always in major league camp um, but I would always break with the AAA team so I was always that one step away um, but like I said, the injuries mounted up and that, that sort of became my MO as far as can he stay healthy? How do you deal with that? Like when, as you know, that's, huh. I, I think when, when we talked the first time, like I was a, I played baseball and I got hurt a lot in high school when I was playing and it totally took its toll and it got in my head. I did not have a, like the right mindset. I, you know, back then if people, I was really good and then people got better than me and I didn't have the, I want to say the, the fortitude or the, um, the ability to like spring back and like just work harder. And you know, me back then as a young person, I just kind of was like, well, I'll find something else. Um, but how does, how did you like keep coming back from those injuries and keep trying? Was there anything that you did or practiced or was it just like an automatic thing? Well, I think, and this is probably going to sound a little wrong the way I say it, but I think because I knew that I could pitch in the major leagues, I, it was more of just a matter of, could I stay healthy? So that was always my, uh, motivation for coming back so you know it does it wear on you mentally did i know i was going to be sacrificing a lot more later on in life not only physical health but mental health um emotional health probably at some point um i did know all of that would come into play um but i at the same time this was my career is the only thing i knew how to do well and so i i just kept fighting for it what was it like, Olivia, being on the other side of it? Like being, you know, you kind of put your life aside to basically support him and, and go along on this journey with him and be with, you know, it's like, imagine if like, you know, you can't do that. You guys, the thing that you guys are there for, you kind of can't do because of injuries. You know, it, I loved our whole experience. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. I loved moving around and I loved being able to be there to support him. Um, it was, it was frustrating because he, he was so good. And sometimes it just is, especially in baseball and especially in pitching, it gets in your head. And so what I would focus on is trying to make sure that his headspace was good before a game. So we used to, I took some, uh, videos of some of his, uh, well, CDs at that time, um, of some of his best games. And so like his Pepperdine game and stuff, which he had, um, he just killed it. And so we would watch those the night before he would pitch just to get him kind of um, excited and remember how good he is and stuff. And he used to even sleep with a baseball in his hand and kept feeling it and feeling it, especially before we went to Japan because they changed the balls. And so um, it, it's, you know, 
my job, I felt, was to make sure that his headspace was good and that he was confident. We even at one point, um, we I got all the girls, we would sit in the wives section and um, I would yell at him right before he was coming out onto the field. And we would yell, you know what time it is, um, so that he would get, you know, pumped up. So, cause I could tell immediately when he would leave the ball pen, what, what, how like he was feeling about himself at that moment, if he felt like he was going to kill it, or if he felt like, um, you know, he was worried about his arm or whatever. So I did the best I could to help make sure that his headspace was good. And that's kind of, unfortunately, all you can do. He was incredibly disciplined and incredibly talented. So it was just a matter of, like you said, keeping him healthy. Do you think you guys learned any like really powerful lessons either about your relationship or you guys are parents or you're both in business and separately, but you interact with each other in business. Like, did you guys learn any lessons from that, from those experiences that you think like really support you guys or help you guys now? Well, yeah, I think it was really important that we had that side of it. And now that I have you know, because it, it's it's kind of flip-flopped in as far as, um, like you said, kind of star thing, that sounds silly to say, but um, <laughs> he's supporting me now when I was supporting him before. And we always talk about that. And it's, you know, it's a little bit of a role reversal, but it's also, you know, so important to support one another. And I wouldn't have the career I have now had it not been for him. He set us up really well. Um, and he's incredibly supportive of what I do, um, as I was with him. So I think that's really important in a marriage. And I think that it's, um, you know, good lessons to, to pass on to your kids. Ricky, is it, is there anything that ever comes up? Like you were, and I, right. We joke where we say, like, I'm saying like you were the star and then she's the star now. That's like, obviously we're playing around, but the idea that you were like, you had the spotlight on you, right. As like, you were the athlete, you were the one that was kind of like leading the way it was going. And now you have taken more of the supportive role and Olivia like has the, the spotlight on her. How does that, was there ever any challenges with that? Uh, I, you know, for sure. And I'd be lying if I said there weren't. And I think it's more maybe from the male mindset of sort of being the provider and at least the primary provider and all that. So I, you know, but what I want to make clear is that it's never about not wanting her to succeed. I think I just wanted to also succeed on that same level, if that makes sense. And so when my career sort of ended, uh, well, not sort of, when it ended on my shoulder um, injury, I, you know, it was, it was tough to deal with that part of it because it wasn't like I wasn't good enough anymore. I just physically couldn't do it. And so I think having that mindset and sort of now having to transition into sort of, I don't want to say normal life, but, you know, trying to get a normal type job and doing that kind of stuff. While at the same time, my wife's career is absolutely skyrocketing and she's doing amazing at it. I think it was a little bit hard to deal with um, at first, especially. And, but I think it was more of a reflection of how my career ended, not how hers was going, yeah. if that makes sense as well. So. It is, it is tough to sort of just be in the supportive role. I don't think it's necessarily that way anymore. I think, you know, we both work hard and we, um, you know, we both work hard for the kids. And, and so it's, you know, we're, we always have the mindset that we're a team and that one doesn't succeed without the other. Um, now, could she go off on her own and absolutely succeed? Yes. <laughs> but I think in our family dynamic and everything that we have going on, I think it's, we are very much a team in all of it. It's, um, you know, we, I think I've come to accept that and I sort of thrive in this role because I do love being around the kids a lot and being able to help them when I can. So, you know, it, did it take adjusting to? Yes. Is there any, you know, we talked about this when I met you, I, I shared with you that one of the things that I am so fascinated with and, and inspired by with athletes and also the thing that kind of bums me out sometimes about athletes is athletes for the most part, right, hit their, it's like they accomplished this impossible feat, right? If you want to be, even where you, the level you got to in baseball is, is like 1%, right? It might even be less than that. Of all the people that play baseball, like in high schools, yeah. it's like probably less than a percent where you got to. So imagine it's like, if, if we look at anything in the world and you become the one percenter, right? So any professional athlete, any Olympian, anyone who's doing anything on that, 
on that scope. And at the same time, we're, they're primarily done, unless they're, maybe they're a golfer, they're basically done on average before they're 30, right? If you're one of the best, maybe you play into your 30s, and if you don't have the injuries, but most athletes are done before they're 30. And if we talk about gymnasts and other things, then it's even younger. And that was the th what got you and them there was that like full commitment, that discipline. It's like you put your whole life in it to it. Nobody makes it to that 1% without giving it, being all in. And then all of a sudden it's done and you're like 30 years old. And I, I say I'm inspired by it because of the all in. And sometimes I'm saddened by it because now at 30, we have these people that are so capable. And then like sometimes they, we don't get to see anything else from them. And I think they're capable of anything. What was the hardest part of that? Like the, you'd been working for this dream, I'm guessing your whole life. And then it's just over. Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> um, it, I, especially because of the injuries. And I, I, I probably speak for most athletes in this, especially people that athletes that were paid. So professional athletes, um, you never want to become the what if guy. And, and, you know, you see that a lot with big time uh, former athletes um, that maybe now are broadcasters, for example, right? Well, if he didn't hurt his knee, could you imagine he would have been like the best player of all time? Or I never had any misconceptions on that part. For me, it was always pitching in the major leagues was my goal. And so that goal evolved over time. When I was in high school, for example, I didn't think about necessarily getting a scholarship right away. I just knew I was pretty good at baseball and football at that point. So I just wanted to go to a school that had good teams. Um, and then all of a sudden I get a call from a, or a, a meeting from a scout saying, hey, there's pro teams looking at you. And I had no clue. I was like, what? I don't even know what that means. You know, so this dream of pitching in the major league sort of evolved, you know, even through college, I got to college and it was kind of the same idea. I was just in college. And then all of a sudden I kind of had a breakout game. Um, and all of a sudden these scouts start, start coming to all my games. And so that was, and then I'm like, oh man, maybe I can get drafted, you know? So this, this thing evolving over time, I think made it so much harder to quit in the end because it was, and, and when I say quit, I, it wasn't voluntary. Um, I think when I knew that my shoulder had finally got to the point where I wasn't going to be able to pitch anymore, um, I, you know, I, I tell a, like a surgeon, it'd be like if you broke your hand and you had surgery on it and you couldn't use your hand anymore, so you couldn't be a surgeon anymore. I, you know, you can, to have it taken away in that sense was very, very difficult to deal with. I think more had I just sort of played myself out meaning that I just wasn't getting any better, the guys around me were getting better, and I just wasn't doing well anymore, then that would have been a lot easier to handle um, rather than just having it end so abruptly. And like you said, I was 32 years old and it was over, you know? So now all of a sudden I'm back to square one. You know, I hadn't graduated college yet. So I, you know, it, it, all of it just sort of hit in an instant. Um, and so it, it took years to sort of, you know, deal with that, to be honest. Yeah. Do you have, do you remember like the last, like the last game, the last time that you pitched? Yeah, I was uh, warming up to go in the game and keep in mind, I had just, this was my first or second full season back from having Tommy John surgery, which anyone that knows about Tommy John surgery pretty much takes almost two years to come back from. So I had been rehabbing for about 18, 19 months already, had been pitching really, really well that season um, when I came back. And you know, my goal at that point was to try to get back to Japan and play um, because I was a little bit older. I, you know, I knew that my chances of getting signed by a team here were pretty slim, but I, to play back overseas in Japan, I think I still had a chance, um, especially because I had such a good relationship with the team there. And so I was warming up to go in a game. This was probably, I think it was in late July, early August. And it, I threw a pitch in the bullpen and it felt like someone stabbed me in the back of the shoulder with a knife. I don't know any other way to explain it. Um, you know, I thought maybe it was just a muscle type thing or just, you know, a one pitch type thing. So I tried to throw another pitch and it went like straight into the ground and I thought my arm was going to fall off. So I, I knew at that point that I had done some serious damage and that, uh, that it was pretty much over right then. Wow. Thanks for, thanks for, uh, letting me explore that and sharing all that. 
Um, I'm sure like, you know, there's some feelings and whatnot associated with all of it. Yeah. It, you know, it, again, man, it, I, I got home, I got home about three weeks later and I met with the, uh, the doctor for the San Francisco giants. And he said, listen, at this point, the chances of your coming back from this is about 10% and meaning coming back to full games and all that. But at this point, it's really a quality of life surgery. Um, because I had done so much damage to all the tendons in my shoulder, you know, they were like, listen, you're either going to deal with this for the rest of your life, or we just go in and fix it. You can try to come back and play, but you're most likely not going to be able to. So we spent like another year, year and a half, even rehabbing from that surgery, hoping to come back. Um, and during that rehab time, I had two more surgeries <laughs> to remove scar tissue and things like that in the middle of that rehab. So I was going through a lot and it was, uh, you know, and finally to sort of feel like, oh, I'm feeling a lot better. And then as soon as I stepped on a mound, it was that same exact pain of that really sharp, you know, uh, knife pain in my back. And so I knew that I wasn't going to come back from it. So it, you know, so it wasn't like I threw that pitch in the bullpen during the game and my career, I knew my career was over. I spent like another year and a half trying to come back and it, and then it was over anyways. So, you know, like I had said earlier, when I knew that getting into this 100% and then dealing with the injuries I was dealing with and the rehabs and how long it took to come back from these injuries, I knew that I was setting myself up for some pretty serious mental <laughs> damage um, going, you know, once I was going to fully retire from playing. So I, you know, I was, I, I kind of already tried to prepare myself for that, probably didn't do a very good job of it. But, um, you know, I, I knew that it was going to be difficult to deal with once I was finally done. So where did you guys go from there, right? You, it's like everything was, you guys really had like, in a way you have all your chips, right? Like stacked in one spot. How does this partnership and this, this team that you guys were creating like around baseball then transition into what's next? So when Ricky came back for, when we realized, cause first he, we thought it was an, uh, a bone spur in his elbow and he had that surgery first and then he had Tommy John. So when we realized it was Tommy John surgery and he'd be out for a season plus, then that's when I decided to figure out what we were going to do after what I was going to do after he was done playing. Because that was always the plan. And I had always or always said, you know, I'll, I'll pick up um, the baton once you're done playing. And so I thought, well, at least I'll get a head start. And so I started to take real estate classes. And I was about eight months pregnant with our daughter, Leah at the time. So I would waddle into class and <laughs> take my, with all my little snacks and stuff. And I took um, all the real estate courses and I had my daughter. And then um, a couple of weeks later, I took the real estate exam. So, um, and then I just started and I thought, well, maybe that'll, you know, be something that can grow into something later. But um, we started flipping about six months into me being an agent. I, I had uh, investor come into the office. I was doing floor time and he said that he was a, a big flipper and if he can, I could find him stuff. So I did, I found a really amazing property on auction um, and brought it to him and he turned out not to be legitimate. He couldn't show me a proof of funds. And so um, the auction was about to start and um, I was really bummed out and I went to Ricky and I said, you know, it's too bad that I don't have more clients because I just found an incredible flip opportunity. I've already checked it out with the contractor. I know everything's great, but I just have no one to sell it to. And I kind of half jokingly said, what if we buy it? And, you know, as most married people do, he was, I think, half listening to me. So <laughs> he said, sure. Um, <laughs> so I really did buy it. Um, I, we, I put in our bid on auction and we own the house within like an hour or two later. <laughs> I went back to him and I said, okay, we own it now. And <laughs> he's like, you did what? So um, that was our first property that we bought. I was incredibly nervous to do it because we put our entire savings you know, everything Ricky had, you know, earned and had, um, we had in our savings on the line to do that property, um, which took about three months um, to do. Um, and I sold it and we made $35,000. And that was kind of it. We just started doing more and more. 
Um, and then I started to have more clients of that. I started to represent more investors um, and it just my career took off at that point. So that's kind of how it transitioned. It was difficult in the beginning because he did go back to playing. So when our daughter was one, I think, one years old, he left again for the season and I was here um, with our daughter by myself. Um, luckily we have a really good uh, family backing. His parents are a really big part of our lives and help out immensely. And my sister, um, who's been my full-time assistant for eight years now, um, started off as my babysitter and is now um, my our assistant in real estate and is amazing. And so we had a really good, um, you know, strong backing basically while he was gone. And so we would leave, Lee and I would go visit him uh, for about a week every six weeks or so. Yeah, we would we would go out there, we would stay for a week and then we would fly back home. Um, so that's kind of how we managed the season while he was still playing. And then he would come back for the off season. And now you built like, I mean, in, in your introduction, I don't even know what all these, you know, things mean, all the like <laughs> awards and accolades and whatnot. But from when I when I met Ricky and we talked, you know, he just really sang your praises of how successful and how your business was going. And, you know, the like top agent magazine, top 40 agent in Sacramento, 10 best for client satisfaction, master's club for six years, all these all these things. And again, I don't know what they I'm not in real estate. I don't know what they mean. But you like went you really like took charge and like created like something really powerful, it sounds like. And that you shared with me before we started recording that you have seven other women that are on your team. Like how did, how did you even become the person that like most people go like, I don't know how to do this. They stay small, they play small. And you're like just kind of continuing to expand and grow. Where does this come from? I just, I, I, I have a drive. I think it just is something inherent. I love working. I love building things. I love figuring things out. Um, my job before at Clear Channel Radio was to figure out, um, we'd have to decide how to increase revenue for the four radio stations. And so um, our job was to conceptualize different events or concerts that would make money for the station and then figure out how to sell them and how to implement them. Um, and so that was kind of my background. Um, I also, and I did that in New York too, actually, when I, when I moved um, to stay with Ricky, I, I pitched myself to the New York Clear Channel Radio and, and they didn't have, it was called non-traditional uh, revenue. They didn't have that department there. So I kind of pitched myself and, and started that division for the, um, for the New York um, company. So um, I, I hated not working ever. And so I kind of would just figure out what I could do wherever we were. I started doing taxes um, during spring training because uh, he would spring train in Florida and Florida didn't have state taxes. So I would take my courses here in California for the federal side. And then I would um, fly a couple weeks early before the season and I would start the tax season there and did taxes for most of the guys that Ricky played with. And then, um, you know, at an office obviously and did that. Um, and I would stay a couple weeks after this, they left for the season and then I would go meet up with them for the season. Even in Japan, I got special permission from the Japanese government to teach there. And to, um, so I would teach English to Japanese kids while we were there just to kind of keep myself busy. But it was just, you know, whatever I can find and whatever I can do to kind of keep myself busy, but be there to, to support Ricky, because that was obviously the most important thing. But I always wanted to go back to work when we came back. And so I was excited to be able to kind of pick up for us and, and until we figured out, you know, the next step for Ricky, because it's, it's hard. You have to think of, for him, like baseball was his entire life. Like he had never had, literally never had any other job besides baseball uh, his whole life. So we, we started to put together his resume and we're like, oh my God, what do we put? <laughs> you know, usually people, you know, by, in, by the age of 30 have like, you know, a million jobs to put on their resume. His was baseball, you know, and we had to figure out how to relate baseball to any other job, which is really difficult to do. And also just trying to figure out something that is as exciting as baseball is really difficult to do too. So we were at, we were at dinner one night and um, 
and I and he said, well, why don't I come work for you? And I said, because I like our marriage. Um, so how about <laughs> you become a lender? And then that way, you know, we could still work together without you kind of being on my team. I don't want to be his boss. I'd like to work together. So uh, we already did flips together. So it made sense. Ricky, is this, uh, how was the experience for you like that transition? Well, I mean, like I alluded to earlier, just having to come off of basically one career ending because of injury and then, you know, sort of figuring out what I was going to do next. Um, it was tough because like Olivia said, I was so single-minded in, in the fact that baseball was everything. And, you know, all of a sudden that just ending, uh, and then all of us, you know, just sort of having to sit there like, okay, I'm married. I got, I got a kid. We got a house. You know, we have cars. Like, okay, what am I doing now? I don't, you know, <laughs> it's time to start thinking about what I'm going to do. So um, it, it was tough because I really had no direction. Um, you know, people would give us advice all the time and and sort of, you know, oh, Ricky should try this or he'd be great at car sales, you know, because a lot of, you know, former athletes do that. And because of the competitive nature of things. And, you know, so, I mean, we always had people coming at us with all types of things I can get into. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to say I settled on the lending part, but it, it seemed like a natural fit because of Olivia's work and, and uh, a friend of ours had sort of mentioned it before. And, and so, it, you know, I, I, Olivia is so successful at what she does because she loves it. And she has that annoying knack of being able to pick up things really quickly. And then, you know, if you like we were talking about earlier about being sort of a rebel, she she just kind of does her own thing with it. And and so when she's building her team and, and sort of going out and we're working on the flips and she's doing flips for other clients, she just kind of does it her way. And I think it's uh it was something that was sort of inspiring to me because I, I want, when I got into lending, I wanted to be like, okay, I don't have to treat this as a job that is like paycheck to paycheck. And I'm out just trying to make deals um, and, and be really savvy about it. This is more of, I'm in a position of where I can really help people and help people make good decisions. And, and uh, you know, and that's, that's what I like about it. Maybe I, I, I wouldn't lie and say, I love the job and this is what I dreamed about doing. Um, but at the same time, to be able to get paid to do something where you can help people, um, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. So what do you like, Olivia, like when we look at, you know, you have this team and you shared with me that you have seven, it's a team of seven women. I think you said six of them were moms or mothers and you just run the team differently. Like what's, what's the biggest challenge of not only running a team of seven people with, you know, it wasn't like there was all this, you know, experience you like really created this, which is really inspiring. Like you just did it without necessarily knowing all the ways how to, but what's, what's the biggest challenges that you have to overcome running a team, but also a team of, you know, I think we could say the same thing. If it was a man running a team of seven men or a man running a team of seven women or a woman running a team of seven men, there's unique challenges with all that. What are the challenges that you guys face that you guys have to overcome? Um, so, and I, I didn't intend to have a team of seven at all. Um, I think everything that kind of happens in my career just just evolves into, into you know, okay, I need another person. And so it, it, it adds to it. Um, up until about a year and a half ago, it was just me and my sister. Um, so she, she being my, my full-time assistant and, um, and then I had, uh, actually Ricky's cousin, it has been working for me for a few years and she was, um, she kind of floated between being a buyer's agent and an admin role. And then now she's back to, um, a buyer's agent. So you know, it, it, I was doing um, about 50 houses a year um, by myself, which was a lot. Um, I was gone every night and all weekend and just back to back to back. Um, and I was not seeing my family as much. And so I realized, you know, it's great to be successful and um, I'd like to continue to be successful, but I also need to prioritize what's important to me. And so I didn't want to turn down the business that was coming to me and I didn't want to stop my growth, um, but I also wanted to prioritize. So I, um, I joined Keller Williams and, and they're big with, with teams and kind of 
helping you figure out how to how to structure that and how to grow and they encourage you to run your business the way you want to and um so that's why I went there and started to grow a team at that point and I truly so the, my first uh, person I added was my business partner who I've been business partners with for I think God, I don't know, at least seven years. Um, she was an escrow officer for 35 years and she was um, one of my, the escrow officers that I use, but we, I've flipped for her and we flipped houses together. And so what I mean by that is I, um, I not only flip for myself and with my partner, I also flip for other people. And so I'll find a house, I will um, uh, run the numbers, get the budget together, run the contracting crew, design it and then resell it and my clients won't ever see the property. So she was one of those clients that I did that for. Um, and she decided she had made so much money off of flipping that she was gonna quit her uh, job um, as an escrow officer and become and, and start real estate full time. So she now runs our, uh, in a whole nother county next to us. She's, um, she runs all of our flips out there and she also, um, takes care of all of our buyers and sellers out in that county. So I no longer have to drive out there, um, which is a little bit of a drive from SAC. So she was the, um, she was one of the first, her daughter started working for me. Um, so she's the only one without a child yet. Um, and so, and who's just phenomenal. Um, and then um, Ildi uh, started, who's another buyer's agent, and she was a mom, and, it, and she was a, a new agent, and so our struggle there was to try to figure out her schedule uh, with her kids and how that was going to vibe, um, and the one thing that I struggled with was, as a mom, I'm asking other people to work nights and weekends so that I don't have to, and I felt really guilty about doing that, conflicted about doing that. But that's how I started, and that's kind of unfortunately how the business is, is a lot of nights and weekends. And so we've really been, um, you know, as, as a family together, we all um, help each other out. And so if somebody doesn't have daycare and they need somebody to take on a showing for them, then we do that. You know, if somebody's out of, you know, on vacation and they need us to cover, we will. Like, it's just very much that, um, that feeling together, and that's what I always want to um, encourage and, and, and keep in our team. So we're, we're really selective of who comes in. And, and I also want to make sure that everybody who is with me is, is successful. Um, and that, um, you know, we're all thriving. So I, I think it's just uh, some people run their, their teams differently, but for me, it's not necessarily about me getting more money in my pocketbook. It's about me being able to take some more time with my family, but ultimately, We've been able to increase the business by 100 grand every year, um, and we'll we'll hit it again this year. So um, it's we we've already halfway through the year surpassed our entire year last year. Wow. So um, I think we did 22 million last year, and we had hit that by July this year. So, so I was just looking while you were talking. I was looking up on the computer like what the average real estate person makes in the United States and. It made me think about it because I think a lot of people, the real estate has one of those, I, coaching actually has this too. Like there's some of those, some industries where people like just decide like, oh, I'm going to do this now, right? Like they're just like no experience, <laughs> no whatever. Yes. I'm just going to go be a real estate agent now. My girlfriend always jokes that before she met me, she was like, oh, I thought coaching was just something that people do after they fail at everything else. Um, and then she met me and she was like, oh my God, you've done like all this training and, and it's actually a really intense and serious thing. And I think real estate's the same, right? There's people that do just say, oh, I'm a real estate agent now. And I, you know, took some tests and whatnot. And then there's other people that are like, are, are all in, let's say. And so the average, do you know what the average is? Can you guess? Um, probably somewhere between 30 and 50,000. Yeah. So it's like 50,000. Um, and, and the, okay. yeah, it's like 50,000 is the median. So obviously it's like the, the middle point and, um, coaching is like roughly the same, which is kind of funny. It's like, and, but you guys are obviously doing like way better than that. And I think the, um, what do you think the difference is? Like what, Mar like what makes you and your team and Ricky, you can look at this too. Cause even though you're not 
on the real estate side, I'm curious like what you see it as from the outside, but like what makes the difference between the people that either do like, you know, around the average or less and the people that blow that out of the water? I truly think it's the relationship with the clients. So, um, on my team, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about the best experience for them, because I, I think that if you do the right thing and your clients are happy, you'll get more business out of that without even trying. I mean, we don't go out there. Like I said, our, our team, we do not cold call. We do not door knock. We don't do any of those things that, that most teams do to generate business. We just provide good service. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give up part of my commission to help a deal close if it's in the right interest of my uh, buyer any day. Um, I, I, you know, and I just, and, and it's, it's the continued relationships that we have after, um, after we close, you know, we do a thing in our uh, team where um, we, we call them touches. And so we try to touch every client three times a year. And we usually do it in the form of a little gift. And so we'll like during Girl Scout season, I took um, two or three Girl Scout cookies and we put like a little um, a little sign on it that said, just thinking about you or, to, you know, hopefully this will help your day better or whatever. And we just leave them at their doorstep or I send them to their work or whatever. And it's just a little, you know, saying hello and um, that we're there. We always have our business cards there in case they want to give them to coworkers or or family or friends, but really it's just to stay connected with them. And, and I truly, honest to God, love what I do. I, I, I'm passionate about it. And I think that our clients see that and they feel comfortable that we always have their best interests at heart. We're always honest with them um, and we'll, we'll continue to remain in touch. And that's where a majority of my business comes from is repeat and referral uh, from past clients. And I love that. I, I think that's, and that's one of the accolades that you named. It's I, I'm, I've been top 10 uh, agents in Northern California for, I don't know, I don't know how many years, three or four, I, I don't know. But that to me was my favorite um, accolade to get because it meant that I was, um, you know, doing well for my clients. Ricky, do you see anything that you, from like the, you know, somebody who works with real estate agents all the time, but also being married to one and partnered with one in life, like what do you see as the thing that separates, and we could probably look at this in anything, but what separates the people that thrive from the average and the people that are kind of below the average? Well, to give a concrete example, I, you know, I work out of real estate agent offices. So, um, even some of my wife's competitors <laughs> and, uh, and but they all know who Olivia is once they once they realize oh your your wife is Olivia you know so they all know who she is um, and and a lot of the agents especially the newer ones like what does she do to get so many clients you know where does she advertise that or where if, does she do Facebook blasts like what does she do and I said you know she doesn't do any of that oh what does she do and I said she works on referrals I and so the business is so much more organic when you can get it that way because you're not out competing with you know, 400 Facebook friends that are all putting up the same post about the real estate market. It's uh, like Olivia said, uh, you know, you hear the cliche a lot in our business that you sort of take on your clients problems when when you're doing the escrow process and, and doing all that because you really are involved so much in their life at, at a certain point, especially on the financial side of things. Whenever we work with family or friends, I tell people like, hey, I'm going to know pretty much everything about you when we're done with this. So if at any point you don't feel comfortable, you know, please let me know. <laughs> I can refer you to a friend of mine. You know what I mean? So I, and, and the reason we say that is because people like Olivia said, get the good impression of, they really tell that we care about how this is all happening. And I think the biggest cliche in our business is that buying a home is the biggest purchase, you know, most families will make in their life. And that, and that's absolutely true. And so if we can be a part of that and help them feel comfortable with it, it, you know, it's kind of hard not to get referrals at that point with clients that you're working with, because again, you're helping them with probably the biggest financial decision they're going to make in their life. And they, you know, if we made it easier for them or made them feel more comfortable about it um, and help them make a good decision for their family, you know, that's, that's what matters to us. I'm going to ask you guys like a really, what might, what'd you say? I said, I think what's important too is diversifying. I think so often people just focus on one thing, you know, like I'm known for flipping and that's, you know, a huge part of my business, but 
I don't just flip. I also help buyers, sellers, um, and, and they all help uh, each other. So the, when I go and show a buyer a house and the house needs uh, remodeling, I can tell them exactly how much it would cost for the kitchen to be remodeled, for the bathroom to be remodeled, for the flooring to be done. I could tell you that off the top of my head and I have the guys who can do it. You know, when I go into a listing appointment, I tell, you know, I might be up against seven other agents for the listing, but um, I'm the only one who can improve your house to sell it, you know, and I have the guys to do it. And I could do it really fast. And so I think that, and, you know, just being able to see all sides of it helps in, in all sides of real estate. So when people tend to pigeonhole themselves into one thing, like, oh, I'm, a, I'm only dealing with buyers, I'm only dealing with sellers, I'm only dealing with flipping, I think they're really cutting themselves short, um, selling themselves short, rather. I, I think that it's important to, to see all sides of it and be in the know and, and all that. I don't handle as many buyers as I used to, but I still help at least a couple buyers at any given time so that I still have my pulse on what they're looking for. You know, and if I see an area, I was showing uh, client houses about a month ago and I realized that we had a lack of inventory of houses in the 600 price point in the Curtis Park area. And so that told me if I find something that is, you know, that needs work in Curtis Park that I could resell in the 600, I should probably pick it up as a flip. You know, and you wouldn't know that unless you you really had the pulse of the market and were were in it and dealing with with all sides of real estate. I want to there's I want to kind of wrap up here with this this question and I don't know if you're going to be able to answer it but it's the it's something that I would been thinking about while you guys have been sharing is a lot of your guys business revolves you know around family around caring around you know it's not just a it's not like just about the money for a lot of people that's how it feels often it's it is like and I don't want to make them wrong for it like they want money they want to make more money they want to be able to take better care of their families they don't actually right. care about clients or whatnot. They just want money. Do you think there's a way that you can like learn to care or practice caring or figure that out? Because I think that's a common thing. A lot of people come on here and say, hey, take care of the people, care about people. And that's what will make success. But I don't know that everybody wakes up in the morning and genuinely like, I mean, I can actually say people don't because if you look at the state of our world, it shows that we don't care about each other. How do you, how does, how can someone... <laughs> How can someone learn to care if they don't feel it? I don't know if you can answer that. You know, what I would say to that is you will make money if you care, uh, but you have to genuinely care. So that's that's kind of the hard thing about it is that if you genuinely don't care, then I, I don't know how to how to make you. But I will say 100% my success is attributed to how I treat my clients and that I really care. Um, and, and they, they can see that they can feel that and it, that it's genuine and therefore they feel comfortable sending their friends and family to me. If they didn't feel that way, I would 100% not be doing more than 10 deals a year. I mean, it's just, I, I see agents sometimes and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, and I, then I look at their, you know, that they just are all about the money they, you know, and then I look at how many, how much you know, how many units they do a year and, and, you know, maybe it's 10, you know, and, and that's reflected because that they, the clients feel that way. So if you do care, good things will come. We have a policy in our team. We do not look at what the commission is on a house because the commission should never sway the way that you've um, encouraged your clients or discourage your clients from getting a house, you know, and I, I think that, and, and, and also that we're, we're always, you know, team players with, if, if we need to give up something to make it happen, it all works out in the end, truly. I, my, one of my best um, examples of that and people, I got a Zillow lead for $40,000 condo, $40,000, which is like, I mean, the, the uh, commission on that is laughable, but, and I showed them a ton of condos, um, but they decided on one and uh, we got it. Um, that client, I ended up uh, selling multiple of those condos to, and then they became flipper clients of mine that I did, I don't know how many deals with them, at least 25. Um, and we're, we're talking, and obviously the, the units went much more. I mean, it, it was equivalent to about 50 grand in, in commission. In the end, all because of one $40,000 Zillow lead that most people wouldn't have even called back, you know? 
So it's, it's never about what you're going to make out of it, you know, or um, that it's just, it, it, it'll all, all good things come to people who care is as, as cliche as that sounds. I think that's true. Well, thanks for giving it a, an attempt at the answer. Cause I just was like present to how much you guys <laughs> do care. And I'm like sitting here going, but what if you don't, or like, what about people that don't, right? We don't all care about everything all the time. And what I'm getting from you is like, you can actually choose to, it's just like a choice. Um, and if you care well, about money, care about people, it's the same thing. Nice. Ricky, what were you going to say? Well, I think too, like one of, one of our first few flips we did in North Natomas and Liv will correct me because I'm sure my timeline is wrong on this, but we had started flipping it. Um, and I want to say it was a single mom that had come through with two kids and her mom lived right around the corner. And she goes, Oh my God, is this, you know, she was really interested in the house and pretty much from the day we started doing um, demo on the home. Uh, she, you know, and so she ended up getting, we ended up selling it to her. Am I wrong on this? I don't know this. Okay. So we made a pact early on when we started flipping was that we would always try to sell to families and never to investors. And again, it harkens back to, we tried to do, you know, where obviously we're going to make money on this, but we can also help families at the same time. And I bring up that specific house because the woman had come to us and had, I, I want to say recently divorced. Um, but again, her mom lived in that neighborhood. And so it would have helped her immensely to get that house had, um, because she would have had like, you know, her, basically her mom babysitting right around the corner. And so, like I said, we ended up selling her the house. It was a huge deal. And Liv is still kind of shaking her head because she doesn't quite remember all of this. <laughs> but, but we also had another home where we sold it to a woman who was uh, a parent of a child with special needs. And we even, you know, so we've done certain things like that where we have tried to just really take the business model of we can make money at this, but we can also help people at the same time. And I, and I know I've said that over and over, but, but it's totally true. And whether it's on a day-to-day -day basis, as far as getting back to clients in a timely manner or answering all the questions they may have, because I think another point in all of this is that while we may deal with this every single day, most people do this once in a lifetime. So for us to just sit there and start, you know, sort of spouting off all this real estate jargon, it, thinking they're going to understand it all. You know, we we take a very, uh, I you know, we take a stance of listen. We we want to be there for you, and literally any question you have, please call, text, or email me. And that's how I that's how I leave every email too when I respond to clients. Like you know, we we try to be as transparent as possible, and we try to to really make them feel comfortable because not only does our business um, financially depend on it, but it's also just who we are um, as people. Well, thanks for, um, thanks for sharing all that, but thanks for being here and like sharing all that with me and the audience, like your guys whole journey. Thanks for, um, you know, sharing the vulnerable stuff and the, the heartbreak around, you know, having a dream and not actually being able to, like live into it, but not because you gave up or you quit, but because your body just wasn't able to. And then the full transition. And I, and I'm, I'm, I just love how you guys went from like one person was in the spotlight to the other person's in the spotlight and you guys like trade off supporting each other. It's really inspiring. And I think it, it probably would, it's a probably a great lesson for couples because whether it be um, business that we're doing it in or just different areas of our life, it's not up to one person. It's a, as a couple, we're a team. So thanks for really modeling that for your kids, for your life, um, and in your businesses. Thanks for being here, guys. I really appreciate uh, all that you had to share. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. I will, uh, when you guys, uh, you know, get on a TV show or start writing books about what it's like to build a successful marriage or, you know, how to flip real estate, we'll have to have you back on. We do have a, a YouTube channel called Flipping in Heels. Cause I'm always wearing heels at the job sites <laughs> because I'm running from showing houses to the construction sites. So anyone can check that out. We have an Instagram too, flipping in heels sack. Um, yeah, we'd love for people to, to check out the show and, and watch it. And 
hopefully it'll go into something more. But right now we got um, a YouTube channel that just follows us around and shows us uh, shows you how we flip. Flipping in Heels is on Instagram and YouTube. And then do you guys have other, what are your guys, uh, do you guys have other social media handles that you want to share? Or is that the one? Um, that's the one primarily. The other, we have Team Barrett, which is our um, Facebook page. Um, and um, we don't have Facebook on on Flipping in Heels. Flipping in Heels is just on Instagram okay. and YouTube. Awesome. Cool. And it's flipping in heels sack because flipping in heels is a guy doing flips in heels. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, you're not looking for these. Uh, if, if you've been listening to this whole episode and you think that Olivia and Ricky do flips like back flips and heels, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. But house flipping. <laughs> um, so check out their YouTube channel. Thanks again for being here, guys. Awesome. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream and I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.